All right, let's go on to Alan's case. This patient is a 66-year-old woman who has been in very good health. She noted a vague discoloration in her right breast and saw her primary care physician last summer about this, and she had a mammogram done which showed architectural distortion, but there was no palpable mass. She underwent a right breast lumpectomy, which showed an infiltrating ductal carcinoma, grade 2, measured 1.2 centimeters. Estrogen receptor was positive. Progesterone receptor was negative. The HER2 was negative by fish. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself, her life situation, what her thoughts were about this, and particularly the possibility of getting chemo? This lady truly is a saint. She's married, but her husband is very uninvolved. She has a disabled adult son who's probably in his 40s. I understand that he's paraplegic from birth, cerebral palsy, has a colostomy, which she has managed herself for the 40-something years that he has lived with her. She knows that at some point She's not going to be able to take care of him anymore, and she's going to have to institutionalize him. But she has faced all of her challenges with a great deal of courage, and she has a very philosophical outlook. She does not see this as a burden. She sees it as a blessing. And she wanted to do everything that she could do to maintain her longevity so that she could take care of this child. Was she concerned that, say, by getting chemo, she might not be able to take care of him while he was getting the chemo? She was concerned about that, but she said, I'll fight through it. What I want to do is to live. So, Rowan, what would you be thinking of presenting to her as possibilities to consider? And she's no negative then? Yeah, she had a sentinel lymph node done that was negative. Yeah. It's an interesting case. I mean, basically, you end up having 1.2 centimeters. So she would be somebody that I would routinely discuss chemotherapy with if you would believe that the bisphosphonates are really going to work in the setting. I haven't done that recalibrated, what my risk would be for adding chemotherapy. I haven't, one should, if you think that's right, you should knock your down people you're discussing to by a third. But ignoring that, this would be somebody that we probably would offer uh, TC to. I think our experience with TC is that we can deliver it without having people be, you know, kind of, it's really less debilitating of a regimen. So I would discuss that with her. I think if if somebody like this was reluctant, though, and you're treating her with aromatase inhibitors and adding a bisphosphonate, maybe if she balked at the chemotherapy, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. How about either Oncotype or participation in the Telerex study? Yeah, this patient we would have routinely done an Oncotype on. And I should say that that's where we're actually using it most. When I look at the Isaac study looking at the AC to AT trial, where she looked at Oncotype and found that the Oncotype and Adjuvant Online gave independent prognostic information. And I think that's the right answer. I think the answer is going to be the trials are done to say which is better, but I think they give independent information. So, But having said that, of the people who Adjuvant Online had a low risk category, about half, it was like 48%, I think, had a low Oncotype. And those people... I'm kind of considering now luminal A-types and don't need chemotherapy. So if she came back with an Oncotype recurrence score of six, which I've seen, then I'd say then it would seem like an AI and a bisphosphonate would be plenty of therapy for somebody like that. Steve? 
Yeah, you know, I think part of what makes up Oncotype is some measure of proliferation. So a lot of times that's not done. In our center, the pathologists routinely do an MIB1 or KI67, some measure of this. We've done studies in the past of DNA flow cytometry looking at S phase fraction, and that was really fairly predictive of outcome. Gary Clark has presented data like that in the past, but no one kind of does DNA flow cytometry. We would have an MIB1 or KI67 if it was low. I certainly would consider chemo. But I agree that, you know, there's maybe 20% of the cases where the oncotype would give you some guidance here. And it's what you really can't quite predict. I mean, this patient is ER positive, progesterone receptor negative. That's a group that might tend to be a little more rapidly proliferative. That's a group that, you know, where you might be thinking about chemotherapy, and that would probably be the reason to do it. I guess the other thing about this case that bothers me a little bit is a sort of diffuse architectural distortion, if it's a whole breast or not, and a breast MRI. This is a setting where they might do a breast MRI to see whether or not there's other areas of involvement in the breast, but presumably not. And, you know, I think if this is really luminal A, low recurrent score, low proliferation, and so on, the use of hormone therapy alone, and now maybe a bisphosphonate Medicare age, you're probably not going to get Medicare to cover this, but maybe she could come up with the funds for it, or maybe she has some other insurance that would pay for it. I think that would be pretty good treatment. So can you follow up with what happened? Well, I tried to make a judgment in my own mind about whether or not chemotherapy should be used. My default in a patient like this, node negative, would be to just use hormonal therapy alone, but I do use the Oncotype DX assay, and we're also participating in the Taylor X trial. And I talked to her about both situations, and she was willing to go on the trial. So we sent off her Oncotype as part of the Taylor X, and I, in my own mind, predicted that I thought she would have a low recurrence score. And it turned out that her recurrence score was 37. (laughs) Wow. Which really surprised me. So it was my choice on chemotherapy, and I did give her four cycles of TC. So as part of the Taylor X study, when they have a high recurrence score, they get chemo. They do get chemo. But your choice of chemo. That's correct. You chose to give her TC. I gave her four cycles of TC, and then I put her... And always a good choice. (laughs) (laughs) And then I put her on an astrazole, and she's had radiation. We did not do any further imaging of the breast. Her margins were negative, and there wasn't much enthusiasm. How did she do on the TC, and how is she doing on the AI? It's amazing. She tolerated the chemotherapy very well. The only thing that she told me was that in all the years that she had been taking care of her son and changing his colostomy, she had never gotten nauseated. But she did get nauseated while she was on TC. And then when she finished TC, she was no longer nauseated taking care of him. Are there any situations where, based on a recurrence score like this, you might want to even bring in an anthracycline enotaxane or more intensive therapy, Steve? I wouldn't. This is still a small node-negative cancer. This is one of those 20% where the oncotype kind of trumps all the other clinical aspects to it, and she is a little bit higher risk. You know, I think in her two negative breast cancer, and you've heard this probably from Dr. Pegram this morning, there's basically, we don't think there's really much target there for the anthracycline. So you're just really exposing her then to cardiac risk, risk of late leukemia. She wants to do everything to stay alive. I would avoid anthracyclines. And so I think that's the 
the benefit of TCA. It worked well in ER positive, worked well in node negative. The only little proviso would be, and I'll ask you what kind of what you did here, is that we did this most recent analysis looking at age 65 or greater, and there was definitely more fever and neutropenia. Now, the rate was 8%, and it wasn't 20%, sort of like ASCO guidelines, but it was 8%. And we've had a debate within the U.S. Oncology Network how many people would use prophylactic growth factors for TC. And some would do it for just over age 65. Some would do it for everybody, and half our docs wouldn't probably do it at all. So I don't know if you used growth factors with this. I did not use any growth factors in her, and she did fine. She got every treatment at full dose on schedule. But I do sometimes use growth factors. If I look at the patient, I think they might be frail if they ever have a dose delay. Even if they don't have febrile neutropenia, I'll use growth factors. Yeah, you know, I think the circumstance you describe, one, this woman's saintly. So the second thing is she is the caregiver. So you really, you know, I'd feel kind of a little nervous here. She's a little, she meets our criteria for at least 8% rate of fever and neutropenia. She's got to be home to do the colostomy since her husband's not going to do it. So What about the tic-tac study that's now the tic-tac-toe study? Any comments on that, Steve? Yeah, I think the data is fairly clear that in HER2 negative, there really is very little target for anthracyclines. Now, you know, the primary target is TOPO2 gene overexpression, but there's also protein overexpression and maybe high proliferation. So maybe the reason your oncotype's high, if you had some proliferation index, this patient would have a pretty high rate of proliferation. And some of those patients, even though the TOPO2 is not overexpressed, might benefit from the anthracyclines. So the fact is, we don't know if there's some subgroups or not in there, and that's the whole basis of TC versus TAC, two drugs versus three drugs, really going to establish once and for all whether adromycin is necessary. And a part of that is tissue collection and really retesting for protein overexpression, for gene overexpression, for proliferation. Now, I think we are in the process, along with NSABP, of expanding that trial to make a tic-tac-toe. The toe would be really looking at TC plus Avastin, because I think it's very important going forward that not all of the bevacizumab be given in the context of an anthracycline-based regimen. So we are going to really be looking at two questions there. We're going to be looking at TC versus TAC, or TC with or without bevacizumab going forward. That's another six months before that trial will be up and running. At the moment, our trials are accruing fairly well. Sarah Cannon and some of the Tory network sites are involved. We're accruing 60 or so patients a month. We've just passed 560 on the trial. And the initial sample size was 2,000. When this trial stops, and we start tic-tac-toe, there will be 3,900 patients on tic-tac-toe, which will ultimately give us roughly 3,600 patients that are on either TC or TAC with appropriate tissue collection. So it really should be enough sample size to find out, is there any some small subgroup that really still needs anthracyclines? So for those who still think anthracyclines are everything in breast cancer, my prediction is they are going down. It's going to take the trial, but when the trial's done, we're going to be using virtually no anthracyclines in early breast cancer. I was trying to figure out, what does TOE stand for? The TOE stands, I mean, if you look at the TANGO trial, which was kind of a long description where they added gemcitabine in order to get TANGO out of that. So TOE stands for really the taxatier, cytoxin, and then with the E out of the bevacizumab. It's a little stretch, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to Oncotype, Rowan, two quick questions. One, what about the mammoprint assay? There are a couple of kind of interesting and provocative letters to the editor and JCO from people who have been involved with mammoprint kind of complaining about why 
the ASCO Tumor Marker Committee and NCCN had sort of endorsed Oncotype and not Mamaprint. They brought up the fact that Mamaprint is in some way, I think it's approved by the FDA or sanctioned yeah. by the FDA. What do you think about that whole argument and what about Mamaprint? Yeah, so Mamaprint, the major difference between Mamaprint, which is a 70 gene signature originating in Europe, where you had original studies, it requires fresh tissue compared to Oncotype, which is 14 uh, smaller number of genes and doesn't require fresh tissue. Basically, the Mamaprint people have gotten around one objection that previously existed in the United States, that is the pathologists want to send tissue out before they made a diagnosis. And what they do is now is you send the tissue, they take the fresh tissue, they'll hold it until the pathologist tells them they're satisfied with their diagnostic materials. If they're not satisfied with the diagnostic materials, they'll just send it back. So that objection has gone away, which is nice. So that you don't have to worry about missing the cancer diagnosis because you sent the fresh tissue away before the diagnosis was being made. So we will begin using it and we'll try to get some experience with it. I think one of the issues is Oncotype has so much data now. They have you know tens of thousands of people done that they can describe a lot of associations that are important that Mammoprint is going to have to run to catch up with. Steve? I think Mammoprint doesn't stand a chance. This requirement for fresh tissue, the pathologists aren't going to send off their best, you know, their tissue without a diagnosis and then find out that they don't have a diagnosis of breast cancer. Maybe they sent the tissue somewhere else. I mean, they're just not going to do that. And I think Oncotype so far ahead with the data. It's relatively easy to get a test approved by the FDA, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. The other issue in terms of, you know, really things that have happened recently that may have major practical implications was the report at San Antonio looking at node-positive tumors, Rowan, with the Oncotype. What was your take on that? And are there any situations where you're actually using it in node-positive patients? Yeah, I don't think there's any reason why it shouldn't work in node-positive patients. I mean, I think with chemotherapy, we've gone away from the concept about node-positive, node-negative. We had a few years where somebody would come up to the microphone and say, how about the node-negative patients? And then our answer would be, well, with high-risk node-negative, we do the same thing. And you could see that somebody did TAC versus FAC in node-negative this year, and just got a poster, right? You know, for 3,000 patients. Yeah, Miguel Martin did that for JCAM, and it really should have been an oral presentation because it's one of the very few trials to focus on node-negative breast cancer of regimen A versus regimen B, and it's a very positive trial with TAC beating out FAC. So it confirms what we've all been saying. It's the same relative risk reduction, and yet it was put in a poster. Yeah, the point of it is is that I think the biology is we're not thinking there's any different. I mean, that's a signal that we're not thinking there's any different. So I think it should be the same for Oncotype, except and then you have a reimbursement issue. And they'll have to generate enough data to show that it works. I think it should work in node positive as well. It's less of an issue for us because I don't think the data is strong enough to withhold therapy. So I'm using it as a prognostic factor. I'm not saying, oh, you got a low oncotype score, so I'm not giving you TC. And so in that case, if I have a node positive patient, there is less clinical value to me. What about in the neoadjuvant setting? There was one study from Italy looking at oncotype trying to predict you know, what would happen with chemo and, you know, the patient, for example, who wants breast conservation, maybe they have a high ER, maybe you're thinking about neoadjuvant hormones to make them resectable or lumpectomized as opposed to chemo. Steve, any way where you, again, assuming you can get it paid for, to try to decide what strategy to use in the neoadjuvant setting? There's just not enough data, in my opinion. I mean, where we've got the data is really a node-negative disease, ER positive, that's pretty well established. I think for the lower-risk 
you know, postmenopausal patient, one node, you know, it sort of makes sense. That was the data that Kathy Albain presented, which really had a tamoxifen-only arm or chemo plus tamoxifen. So that was kind of the right comparison. And the ones that had a low recurrence score really had exactly kind of the same biology where you could kind of make the argument. So in a lot of parts of the world, somebody like your patient, ER positive, postmenopausal, a couple of positive nodes, they're only going to get endocrine treatment. Anyway, wouldn't even be thinking about chemotherapy. So in most parts of the world, it wouldn't matter. And I guess if you have a patient who's very reluctant and you're trying to convince her, maybe you could think about doing it. And I've found a few oncologists who've done it on node positive disease. Neoadjuvant, I think the bets are kind of off at this point. Yeah, I would say from neoadjuvant, from my view, it's very difficult to get the surgeons that we work with. And I think just maybe looking at it in practice as well to be content with that. Basically, our surgeons are doing ultrasounds. I mean, you know, checking on our progress in a certain sense, you know, so they're not depending on us to tell them the patient's doing okay. They're doing their own ultrasounds while we're giving neoadjuvant therapy. I think if you give neoadjuvant hormone therapy and have to wait months, I think the surgeons would get very nervous about that. And since we don't know it's better, it's just hard to see why that would be an advantage, at least in the U.S. I should mention one thing. I get back to the arthrologist because I missed my chance to mention estrogen. And we mentioned about the arthrologist. The question was, was it a class effect or not? And I think it is a class effect because there's good evidence. And we had some of that in the, the Women's Health Initiative where in the arms that got estrogen, one of the good things that happened, one of the few good things that happened was that arthrologist and joint pain was significantly decreased. And there's arthritis increases at the time of menopause. We just saw in the ABCSG12 trial that there was more arthritis and joint pain in the GnRH in that study than previously seen. So basically, I think there's a lot of signals that it's going to be a class effect due to estrogen deprivation. Estrogen important in maintaining collagen in the joints. So you get this kind of joint breakdown. At San Antonio, we saw the switching trial, one month of anastrozole followed by one month switching to letrozole. And basically, they went either way with tamoxifen. They went all the three different ways. And any switch resulted in less arthrologists after the switch. And I think that relates to not differences between these therapies, but rather Aman Buzdar's data from ATTACK, where after about six months on therapy, about a third of the women had their symptoms improved. As long as women stay on estrogen suppression for a period of time, their body will or their joints will get accustomed to that level. And so I think when we're switching, we're just getting people to go on a longer duration. And I've had much better success with saying, which is a little like a trick, saying, I'm going to switch your medication. It might take a couple months before you see a symptom improvement, as opposed to saying, come back in three months and we'll see if the symptoms are better. The first one is easier for patients to accept. Bonnie? Is there any bone density that is so bad that would scare you away from an AI? It really isn't. I mean, basically, we end up, the way I look at it is you've got two separate diseases. You've got two separate diseases. And I mean, it isn't like if you had diabetes, you wouldn't make it an adjustment. No, I appreciate it, but they're not treated in a vacuum. And I know for yeah. some of my patients, if the bone density is that bad, I might say, all right, we're going to switch you. We're going to do the TAM for a couple of years and flip you over because then at least I can well, not hurt one disease and maybe I'm not hurting the other. Now, the issue there, and tamoxifen for a couple of years is building up the bone is a strategy that really isn't very effective because you get accelerated bone loss once you stop the tamoxifen. So, I mean, it's okay. And I think the important point is that Different people can treat differently, and there's nothing wrong with that one right way or wrong way of looking at our therapeutic decisions. So I'm not saying that anybody that's doing something different is managing the patients incorrectly. I just say 
outlining what my strategy is. I think one of the other things we learned is one of the things we were concerned about before was hip fracture, right? That was a major concern was in all the editorials about the AIs. And then when you look at ATT&CK, which had no screening or protocol-defined bisphosphonate use, there was almost identical number of hip fractures, and the hip fractures were low. What we learned subsequently in the last few years is that you need substantial trauma, no matter what your bone density is, to have a hip fracture. So this is a study of 170,000 women get a bone density as a cohort, and then three years later, and they looked at the huge number of women in their 50s, and even with osteoporosis, there were no hip fractures in three years. The women that got the hip fractures were the 80 to 99-year-olds, because those were the women who were at day-to-day risk of substantial trauma, the way they fall. And so a 50-year-old, to get a hip fracture with osteoporosis has to be an automobile accident. Just falling down the steps, the way they fall, they're not going to get it. So basically, I look at it as bone loss is not representing, especially in people under the age of 70, as a life-threatening disease. And I know a recurrence of breast cancer represents a fatal disease. That's the way I look at it. So that's it's just a philosophy. One can look at the data and say whether the data unequivocally supports that philosophy. Yeah. And the other comment is, you know, I, I agree with the point. I mean, it is a separate process. I would start treating the bone with bisphosphonate. If I could get her IV zoledronic acid or reclass, I would try to do that. If not, I'd try to get an oral bisphosphonate. 